the 3rd to 4th of January 1569, when the news broke in London that the Duke of Alva, Philip II of Spain's hardline man in Brussels, had put all English merchants under arrest and seized their goods. The news caused great consternation in the city, fueling xenophobic tensions which had heightened in recent years with the influx of refugees from the Low Countries. There was, according to the Lord Mayor, great stirring this night in the streets, as well of merchant strangers as English. As officials retaliated against Philip's subjects in London over the following weeks by seizing their goods, they made a bonfire in Cheapside of the images taken from the Spanish merchant Antonio Guaris's house, with a crowd threatening that all foreigners and those that owned images should be burned. Alva had acted precipitately on the advice of the Spanish ambassador in London, who'd probably misunderstood the Elizabethan government's action in, un in unloading, allegedly for safekeeping, treasure destined for the Low Countries from Spanish ships, which had been driven by storms and Huguenot privateers into southern English ports. That misunderstanding was the result of simmering religious and commercial tensions between England and Spain, which had built up since the Queen's accession. The anger of merchants in the Low Countries at increased customs duties, actually imposed by Mary's government in 1558, had contributed to a trade embargo by Philip's regent in 1563-4, but many took the view that it was part of a deliberate plan by Catholic hardliners in Brussels to destabilise the Elizabethan regime. On that occasion, the differences had been patched up and the English merchants returned after a brief experiment with an alternative outlet for their goods in Emden. But the breach of 1569 was to be more long-lasting. The English had in fact already negotiated a new trade deal with Hamburg, well placed on the Elbe for access to key German markets and with a better cloth finishing industry than Emden, allowing the merchant adventurers the free import and export of cloths and also the right to buy, uh, to, to buy from and sell to foreigners, a right which incidentally was not reciprocated in London. So in 1569, the English merchants had a plan B. And in April, 15 ships embarked for Hamburg, accompanied by seven of the Queen's warships. Now, it's true that the English returned to Antwerp in 1574, but its traction had been very seriously weakened. For Sir Thomas Gresham, the Queen's agent in the Low Countries, with responsibility for her dealings on the Antwerp money market, this was a not entirely unwelcome turn of events. He had been arguing for disengagement from Antwerp for several years. The combination of the deteriorating political situation and the religious disorders in the Low Countries had convinced him by 1566 that England needed some other realm and place for the utterance of our commodities, whereby this realm may remain in peace and quietness, which in this brabbling time is one of the chiefest things to look into, considering in, considering in what terms this country, that is the Low Countries, doth now stand in, which is ready to cut one another's throat for matters of religion. Moreover, if only the government relaxed the anti-usury laws he claimed, the Queen would be better able to borrow from her own subjects. 
John William Burgeon, uh, Gresham's Victorian biographer, whose youthful antiquarian scholarship otherwise commands respect, interpreted this break with Antwerp as crucial to the development of England's commercial and imperial supremacy. I quote, Thus did the ties which had served to bind the English so fast to Antwerp begin to be dissolved, and something of our national independence shown, which in after years was so distinctly asserted and established. Our commercial greatness may be said to have risen on the ruins of Antwerp. Commerce was effectually directed into new channels. It was, if you like, a form of taking back control. <laughs> So I want to use this talk as an opportunity to explore England's changing relationship with mainland Europe and to test Bergen's claims and the Victorian narrative of England's rise to commercial and, uh, and imperial greatness that underpins it. How serious was the challenge posed by the break with Antwerp? How did English merchants respond? And what were the implications for the flows of people, goods and ideas? But before going very much further, we need to sober up a little bit and face some awkward facts. 16th century England punched relatively low in terms of the indices of state power. Uh, its population was around 2.4 million, well below France with 16.4 million, or peninsular Spain with 6.8 million. And Spain was further advantaged by the resources of its territories in Italy and the Low Countries. Italy boasted one large city, London, which though growing was still smaller than it had been before the Black Death. And with a population of 60 to 70,000 in 1550, London was smaller than Antwerp, which stood at 84,000, and way behind Naples on 212,000, Venice 158,000, Paris 130,000. Estimates of national income in this period are notoriously fragile, but for what it's worth, historians estimate that GDP per head was 33% higher in the Low Countries and 25% higher in Italy than in England, though Spain lagged 20% lagged behind England. Imports per head in 1550 were at least three times higher in the Low Countries than in England. Whereas the real wages of London craftsmen fell in the 16th century, those of their counterparts in Antwerp held up reasonably well. And whereas GDP per head surged ahead by 60% in the Low Countries over the course of the 16th century, in spite of the political difficulties, in England it essentially flatlined, economic activity being unable to keep pace with an expanding population. But many contemporaries were blind to these realities. England lived in the shadow of a triumphant past, and Henry VIII's expense of blood and treasure in the efforts to live up to the models of Henry V's kingship fell flat. Mary Tudor's involvement in the Continental War, in the Continental War of her husband, Philip II of Spain, brought about the loss of England's last continental possession in Calais in 1558. Queen Elizabeth perhaps recognised more clearly than her ministers the limits of English state power. But even Gresham, 
who, as we shall see, knew more than most people about the limits of its military capacity, could get carried away in 1562 with thoughts of exploiting internal conflicts in France to, quote, recover those pieces we have lost of late, or else better pieces. Aid to the Huguenots, he claimed, would mean that Picardy, Normandy and Gascony will be had to the crown of England again. A little bit delusional. Um, uh, for much of Gresham's career then, London did indeed lie in the shadow of um, Antwerp, or orbited Antwerp as a satellite. Historians have used those images. Antwerp's function as an entrepot derived from its position at the intersection of north-south and east-west trading routes. It served as a centre for the exchange of goods between the Netherlands, northern France, the Rhineland and the Baltic, and from the 1460s to that was added a role as an outlet for the products of southern Germany, Bohemia and Silesia, including their precious metals. It was the availability of those metals that made Antwerp attractive to the Portuguese as a distribution centre for the spices from their new East Indies trading posts from 1501. Given the extraordinary range of commodities available there, it was advantageous to channel England's cloth exports through it. It is true that Antwerp's dominance in the transit trade was weakened by warfare and currency devaluations in the 1520s and 1530s, and its role as the staple for Portuguese spices was progressively undermined. But its economy diversified in the 1540s and 1550s with the expansion of manufacturing in the Low Countries, particularly in textiles and luxury products. By 1560, industrial production in the Low Countries matched agricultural production, a unique situation in Europe at this time. Antwerp had also attracted the leading finance houses of Europe, and between 1544 and 1574, it was the prime source of credit for the English government. And so from 1551, with some interruption at the beginning of Mary's reign, Sir Thomas Gresham was responsible as the crown agents in Antwerp for managing that debt, somehow persuading, and he was indeed a brilliant self-publicist, persuading successive ministers that only he had the necessary skills. But Gresham had built his fortune in a more conventional way as part of the family firm, members of the Mercers and Merchant Adventurers companies trading on the London-Antwerp axis. His father, Sir Richard, and his uncles, John and William, exported English cloths in exchange for Italian silks and fine woolens and tapestries, with a byline in the arms import trade. The money came in quite easily. Net profits on cloth exports have been estimated at around 20% at this time. The Greshams became leading city magnates, both Richard and John reaching the pinnacle of civic greatness by holding the mayoralty. Richard Gresham's income from his landed estate was at least £800 a year at the time of his death in 1549. Thomas's net profits from trade alone was £769 a year between 1546 and 1551. And those are levels of wealth equivalent to at least the minor peerage and way beyond that of most uh, gentlemen. England's export trade, it is clear, was dominated by cloth, accounting for two-thirds of all the exports by the reign of Elizabeth. The trade had boomed in the early 16th century, 
Uh, in the later 15th century, we had, it was about 40,000 cloths a year were being exported. By the 1540s, that had doubled. By Elizabeth's reign, it stabilised at about 100,000 cloths a year. Most of this was destined for Antwerp, as much as two-thirds in 1565, though imports were more variously sourced, Antwerp accounting for about 37% in the 1560s, France and Spain for 22% and 11%, respectively, a reflection of the scale of the wine trade, which accounted for 12% of all imports. Now, there is no doubting that all this boded rather well for the elite of London merchants who controlled the trade. But it had a dangerously narrow basis. The Merchant Adventurers Company's monopoly on the export of cloths by native merchants to Antwerp had a seriously distorting effect on the national economy as it led to the concentration of the trade in London and the weakening of ports elsewhere. By the 1550s, London accounted for about 90% of all England's cloth exports. Little wonder that the criticisms of London as a deformed monstrosity began to gather momentum at this time. London might well be the belly, or if you will, the head of, the, uh, of England, declared Thomas Diggs in Parliament in 1585, but the extremities, the legs and hands had to live, and they were being impoverished. The merchant adventurers used their financial leverage with the crown to discriminate against their provincial members by means of hefty admissions fees. Nor did the adventurers' trade contribute much to the shipping industry. The cloth fleets were small, employing probably no more than 30 ships on short-haul voyages. The average tonnage of ships entering the port, port of London in the 1560s was low as 56. Moreover, over-dependence on cloth and on a single staple left the economy and indeed the Crown's finances dangerously vulnerable to embargoes. Discontent among unemployed textile workers during a previous embargo um, in, in 1528 had been a contributory factor in constraining military action by uh, the king. The people that depend upon the making of cloth, William Cecil observed grimly, are of worse condition to be quietly governed than the husbandman. Uh, the, the government, as I say, was dangerously dependent on the customs. The revision of the rates in 1558 meant that overall customs revenue contributed 30% of the ordinary income of the crown. The export, export, export duties on cloth alone accounted for around 15% of government revenue. So disruption to that income flow would seriously compromise the state's already limited capabilities. Another indication of relative economic weakness was the underdevelopment of English manufacturing. As Sir Thomas Eliot observed in 1531, if we will have anything well painted, carved or embroidered, we are compelled to abandon our own countrymen and resort to strangers. Richard Gresham had sourced luxury Tapestries for Wolsey in Antwerp, a vast collection, actually. His son, Thomas, acted likewise as a shopping agent for the great and the good. For his patron, Cecil, and his wife, he supplied items as varied as a clock, silk hose, velvet stools, leather and velvet chairs, five cases of glass, 16 little pillars of marble for a gallery destined for Theobalds, as well as Bologna sausages and salt tongs. 
Now, that dependence on foreign talent for luxury goods is perhaps unsurprising. English artisans did not benefit from the significant skills transfers that came from the practice of many continental journeymen of moving between different centres of craft production as part of their training to pick up skills. But more worrying was the apparent dependence on overseas sources for basic items of consumption. As Sir Thomas Smith complained in his Discourse of the Common Wheel, the most sophisticated piece of economic writing in 16th century England, uh, he's writing in 1549, says that, I marvel that no man taketh heed unto it, what number first of trifles cometh hither from beyond the seas, that we might either clean spare or make them else make them within our own realm, for the which we pay inestimable treasure every year, or else exchange substantial wares and necessary for them, for the which we might receive great treasure, of the which sort I mean glasses, as well looking as drinking, as, gla as to glass windows, dials, tables, cards, balls, puppets, penhorns, inkhorns, toothpicks, gloves, knives, daggers, pouches, brooches, aglets, buttons of silk and silver, earthen pots, pins, points, hawksbells, paper, both white and brown, and a thousand other like things that might either be clean spared or else made within the realm sufficient for us. Let's take just one item from that list, paper. The main reason why Henry VIII's great Bible of 1538 and the pinnacle of Reformation um, output, the reason why that Bible was printed in Paris rather than London was probably the paper shortage in England. The Bible was a hefty affair weighing in at 11 pounds six ounces, each volume requiring more than a quarter of a cubic foot of paper. There was no significant white paper manufacturing in England until the 1580s, although intriguingly, Gresham himself appears to have experimented with paper mills on his Austerly estate in the 1570s. Before then, paper had to be imported. The other reason for printing the Bible in Paris was the technical backwardness of English printers. The printer chosen, François Reynaud, had in fact been responsible for all the service books provided in England since 1519. English printers relied on the rapid turnover of small, cheap, popular books, and they were not too fussy on aesthetics. If you wanted a decent book, uh, you got it printed overseas. So learned texts tended to be imported, and English authors would have their works published abroad to ensure some kind of uh, impact. England likewise lagged behind in the all-important armaments industry, Henry VIII has sought to bring it up to date by drafting in armourers from uh, Germany and uh, Italy uh, to service his Greenwich arm armoury. But still, by the mid-16th century, England was heavily dependent on arms imports and the Greshams played a critical role in that trade. As royal agent, as I've said, his primary role was supposed to be sorting out the Queen's borrowing, but he dedicated an extraordinary amount of his time to sourcing armaments. English arms and imports uh, between September 1558 and June 1560 cost a dizzying sum of 20, over £23,000. And basically, this is all being done by Gresham. It includes 200 tonnes of saltpetre, that's potassium nitrate, the key ingredient in gunpowder. As Gresham put it, the thing which cannot be missed for the defence of our forts and ships, and which was in perilously short supply in the wake of the fall of Calais. Calais. 
Gresham, in, fa- in effect, became an arms smuggler because the export licences England had enjoyed during Mary's reign were cancelled under Elizabeth. Relations, of course, were now much more frosty with Philip. Gresham resorted both to exporting through other ports, mainly Hamburg, but also by bribing the Antwerp customs officials, claiming that the chief searcher was, quote, all my doer, he'd been corrupted. But he also sourced more widely, scouring Europe as far afield as Hungary and Bohemia. And indeed, he's still at it in the last year of his life, seeking to, supply, seeking to secure supplies of saltpetre now in Morocco in exchange for other armaments through his agent Edmund Hogan. Gresham obviously also clearly saw the advantages of import substitution and regularly badgered Cecil for the setting up of gunpowder mills um, in England. Now back to the more basic imports, those consumer goods, the unnecessary trifles, as Cecil called them. It was characteristic of contemporary prejudices that... Um, these, the, the, the importation of these goods tended to be blamed on foreign merchants manipulating, it was all their fault, manipulating the taste of Englishmen. William Harrison, the Essex parson, who wrote the influential description of England, which is inserted into Holinshed's Chronicles, claimed that the rot had in fact set in with Edward III's conquest of Calais in 1347, when the English began to wax idle abandoning their former painfulness and frugality to live in excess and vanity. The strangers, perceiving our sluggishness and despising this idleness of ours might redound to their profit, forthwith employed their endeavours to bring in the supply of such things as we lacked continually from foreign countries which yet augmented our idleness. That trope of alien merchants exporting solid English products um, uh, in exchange for gaudy goods was well established on the uh, English stage and found its way into the famous libel against strangers posted on the wall of the Dutch church in 1593. Visitors to England remarked that the English thought that foreigners never came to their island but to make themselves masters of it and usurp their goods. It is true that in the first half of the 16th century, the strangers, or aliens as they were otherwise called, did indeed hold a large share of English overseas trade. Uh, The substantial increases in the volume of trade up to 1520 benefited the aliens disproportionately. The share of trade handled by uh, uh, English merchants actually fell from 65% to 50% 50% between 1460 and 1510. And the biggest beneficiaries of, that ex- of the expansion in cloth exports in that period were, in fact, the merchants of the Hanseatic League, a federation of German and Baltic cities whose London headquarters lay in the London Steelyard. Benefiting from a more favourable customs regime than English merchants through the privileges granted by Edward IV, the value of their cloth exports quintupled over that period as ever larger quantities of English cloth moved down the Rhine Valley. But there was also a significant uh, Spanish and Italian presence uh, in London as the international firms based in Antwerp set up London offices for the distribution of Mediterranean and Iberian products. Now, of course, we're fortunate to have several portraits of members of London's steelyard community from the hand of Hans Holbein, yet another reminder, if we needed one, of the dependence of the luxury trades on skilled foreigners. 
The image of the 34-year-old George Gizzer wonderfully captures the internationalism of the early and cosmopolitanism of the early 16th century merchant community. The family had originated in the Rhineland in Cologne, but had established themselves in Danzig, a German-speaking colony owing allegiance to Poland. The painting is full of references to his business activity. You've got his account books, quill pens, his signet ring and seal, sealing wax. He's holding a letter from his brother in Basel, and on the rack behind him are the return addresses of other merchants in Basel. Merchants like Gizzer, exploiting their widespread family connections, helped plug London into the framework of international commerce. But one of the most remarkable shifts of the 16th century is the degree to which these foreigners were progressively excluded from participation in England's overseas trade. By 1565, the alien share of cloth exports had fallen to 22%. Their share of imports in the 1590s uh, was at 25%, again, halved. On the eve of the Civil War, um, 1640, it was just 12%. Now, the Reformation had something to do with that. It maybe contributed to the difficulties faced by the Italians and the Spanish. But it does look like the collapse of the Antwerp Mart in 1569 and the withdrawal of, of, of the Mediterranean merchants and, and, and Italians was a key factor. The position of the Hanseatic merchants had already been seriously weakened when the government suspended their privileges in 1552 at the instigation of none other than Sir Thomas Gresham. This was a quid pro quo to secure the cooperation of the merchant adventurers in his attempts to manipulate the exchange rates in the management of the government's debt. Gresham was a leading opponent of any concessions to the Hansa, telling Elizabeth that under no circumstances should she restore them to their usurped privileges. A further blow was the establishment of the Mart in Hamburg, a dagger struck at the heart of the Hansa world. Such was their appetite for what they called London cloth that the German estates refused to endorse pressure from the League on the Emperor to expel the merchant adventurers. Nevertheless, even at the end of Elizabeth's reign, the apologists for the London merchant community continued to spin an alternative narrative in which foreign merchants continued their project of taking over England's trade. So the fate of foreign merchants at least partially endorses the narrative that places the collapse of the Antwerp Mart as a key factor in the Londoners taking control. What of the case that it also facilitated the diversification and expansion of English trade? Well, it's sort of true. Um, Ian Blanchard threw down a gauntlet against the prevailing consensus that, frankly, no one has really picked up. His, his book's not that easy to read. Um, because what Blanchard suggests is that London merchants were actually rather more flexible, more adventurous than they've been given credit for in this earlier period. It's the economic crisis of the 1520s, he claims, that caused the adventurers, merchant adventurers, to initiate direct trade all over Europe, as well as diversifying their export businesses to include lighter cloths. And to some extent, the trading practices of the Greshams bear this out. During the crisis on the Antwerp Bourse in, the, in 1515 to 1517, they, they abandoned temporarily their Low Countries connections and traded directly to Bordeaux and the Baltic and sent a ship into the Mediterranean with the elder Gresham brother William as factor. 
During the 1520s, Richard Gresham's trade with the Baltic flourished, while William and John joined in ventures to the Levant. It's actually on the basis of lost account books of John Gresham that Richard Hackliot made his claim that between 1511 and 1534, divers tall ships of London took part in ordinary and usual trade to Sicily, Crete, Chios, and some whilst to Paris, as also to Tripoli and Baruti in Syria. They sometimes dealt with Turks and Jews, and they made use not only of English shipping vessels, but, sh uh, but, 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 but uh, ships from the Candiots, Ragusans, Sicilians, Genoese, Venetians, Spanish and Portuguese, presumably with polyglot, polyglot crews. Likewise, the vitality of the English merchant community in Spain in the 1520s should not be underestimated. But it's less clear that the shifts were as decisive as Blanchard implies. He perhaps underestimates the adaptability of the Antwerp economy, which, as I suggested, diversified in the 1530s to draw on the flourishing textile industries of the southern uh, Netherlands. And indeed, the English presence in the Levant had faltered by the middle decades of the century. Uh, in 1570, Jasper Campion, writing from Chios to the London merchant Michael Locke, claimed that we have not traded here for several years. And in Spain, the merchants' association with the heretical government of Henry VIII made them regular targets for the Inquisition, Spanish Inquisition from the later 1530s. All our nation here is abhorred, and they say we be heretics, bemoaned the merchant Richard Abbess in a letter to Thomas Cromwell. But still, some English remained in Spain throughout. Indeed, Thomas Gresham uh, had uh, Spanish trading connections, and he visited Spain in 1554, maintaining an interest in the country through his factor, Edmund Hogan. Hackliot makes the revealing accusation that London's covetous merchants could behave as pious Protestants at home while sending their sons into Spain to hear mass. The responses of Londoners to 16th century religious changes were not so monochrome as we might think. So we certainly need a longer chronology to explain the diversification of the pattern of trade. And indeed, one should fold in here the Guinea voyages and the opening up of the trade to Muscovy in the 1550s. But there was undoubtedly an acceleration from the 1570s. The new staple towns of Hamburg and later Stade and Middleburg were not an adequate substitute for Antwerp. So merchants found that the prices of their imports rose, and it's this that encourages them to row further afield in their search for trade goods. In the course of the 1570s, London merchants re-established a presence in the western and central Mediterranean, for which they imported wine, silk, spices and dried fruit. But it was soon recognised that greater profits could be made if commercial concessions could be obtained within the Ottoman Empire. And this also chimed in with Elizabeth's anti-Spanish strategy. In 1578-9, two London merchants, Richard Staper and Edward Osborne, sent William Harborne on a secret embassy to Sultan Muir III. And that bore fruit in a pretty favourable trade deal in 1581. And from that, uh, the Turkey uh, company emerges. Um, it, merged, emerged, it merged with the, Levant, with the, with the Venice Company uh, in 1590 to form the Levant Company. So the horizons of merchants and mariners definitely broadened in the later 16th century. Motives were mixed. The successive expeditions to explore the northeast and northwest passages were driven by the desire for new routes to the riches of the east, bypassing Spanish imperial power. 
Those like Sir John Hawkins and Sir Francis Drake, who penetrated the Spanish Empire, hovered uneasily on the line between commerce and piracy. But increasingly, their activities could be justified as part of the regime's containment of the Spanish threat. Others developed the case for an overseas empire. The polymath John Dee was the first to use the term British Empire in his general and rare memorials pertaining to the art of navigation in 1577. For Richard Hacklut, compiler of the principal navigations, first published in 1589, colonisation had an ideological dimension. In his Discourse of Western Planting of 1584, he argued that the Western discovery would increase the number of Protestants. There were commercial arguments for colonisation, of course, but these too were linked to, linked to religion. For if the English trades had become, in Hacklut's words, beggarly or dangerous, it was because they'd been harassed by Catholic powers who had forced the English overseas to fling their Bibles and prayer books into the sea. The solution for Hacklut lay in developing colonies in North America. For between 30 and 34 degrees latitude, the English would find everything that they wanted. Of course, the claims of the theorists proved difficult to translate into practice. The Frobisher voyages to discover the Northwest Passage may have increased knowledge about the wider world, but they achieved little materially, and the Roanoke colony in Virginia was a miserable disaster. Likewise, it would be unwise to exaggerate the transformation in the pattern of overseas trade in Elizabeth's reign. London merchants remained extremely cautious, reluctant to invest in the more speculative voyages. As Fisher pointed out, the results of the early voyages were more spectacular than fruitful, and three-quarters of England's, uh, sorry, of London's cloth exports were still directed at northwestern Europe in 1600. Russia and Barbary were tiny pinpricks in the picture with around 2% each. More significant was the Baltic trade, developed by the Eastland Company, which accounted for 12%, and the Levant trade, growing, actually rapidly growing, um, but at, at 9% in 1600 of cloth exports. Now, merchants then played key roles in connecting Elizabethans with the outside world, and we're increasingly sensitive uh, to their role as cultural brokers, uh, their role in the transmission of ideas. Merchants depended on up-to-date news about commodity prices, exchange rates, and political developments, which might affect their capacity to trade. They were often in possession of key information ahead of their governments and came to play crucial roles in government intelligence networks. And Gresham is the example par excellence of this, priding himself on his mastery of information and the range of his contacts. There is never a bourse, but yet I have a note what money is taken up exchange by exchange as well by the stranger as the Englishman. He was no mere merchant, but a socially amphibious creature, moving easily between the worlds of city and court, between London and Westminster, Antwerp and, uh, Antwerp and Brussels, as comfortable with the, with, with the words of office and compliment which governed courtly transactions as he was with the details of commerce and the exchanges. He maintained an astonishing range of contacts in government 
and Elizabeth Settle was his primary patron, but Lord Keeper Bacon was among his close kin, and he had cordial relations with other key players like Sir Thomas Parry and the Earl of Leicester. The fact that he was used to pay ambassadors' expenses set up another web of relationships. His friendship with Jasper Shetts, who ruleth the whole finance and the bourse, always ready to do me service, gave him a means of plugging into the financier's broad social network, which extended far into the court at Brussels. His access at Brussels meant that in 1558, Gresham was actually acting as a go-between between Mary and her absent husband, Philip. His familiarity with Elizabeth, who had promised in 1558 that she would always keep one ear shut against his detractors, was such that he could ask her to look to my poor wife during his absences. Both Thomas and Anne, his wife, exchanged New Year gifts with their monarch. Gresham's hospitality was open-ended. He knew the importance of feasting England's creditors regularly in Antwerp to keep them sweet. His Bishopsgate house was used to entertain foreign dignitaries like the Huguenot defector Odet de Chatillon in 1568 and Prince Casimir of the Platinate in 1579. He was able to reciprocate the hospitality of the Prince of Orange in 1566. He entertained the Queen at Osterley on at least nine occasions. And what one would give to see the painting recorded in the Earl of Leicester's inventory of a Gresham feast. It's not survived. Now, this range of contacts meant that Gresham was extraordinarily well-informed. As royal agent in Antwerp, he was constantly on the alert for news and intelligence, which he passed on to Cecil in letters packed with information and written in his own hand. And nor did he simply soak up information, rather he actively sought out intelligence from his so-called doers. Their letters, basically their spies, um, were included in the packets of information he forwarded to the government. Big packets of, of news uh, landing on Cecil's desk at very regular intervals. Um, so merchants thus transmitted information, but they also transmitted culture. The English Renaissance was a mediated phenomenon. It was mainly through contacts with France and the Low Countries, rather than direct contact with Italy, that the new ideas and forms flowed, and merchants were crucial to that process. As Derek Keynes put it, Antwerp brought the Mediterranean closer to the North Sea. We've already seen how merchants like Gresham facilitated the exposure of the English elites to continental luxuries. Craftsmen in London, sometimes also through exposure to um, immigrant artisans, responded by imitation and emulation. English silverware changed as artisans engaged with designs from Antwerp in the mid-16th century. Interior decoration owed a great deal to the pattern books produced in the Low Countries. Citizens' houses incorporated features like strap work carved or modelled in the Antwerp manor. But the prime example of the imported Renaissance is, of course, Gresham's Royal Exchange, constructed between 1566 and 1568. With its open arcade on Tuscan columns around four sides of a courtyard, there was nothing like it elsewhere in London, apart from, perhaps from Protector Somerset's uh, Somerset House of the 1547-8. The exchange was modelled on the Antwerp Bourse and designed by the Flemish architect Hendrik van Passion. Many of the building materials were imported, 
As William Harrison put it, Gresham bargained for the whole mould and substance of his workmanship in Flanders. He, actually, he employed foreigners on the uh, building site, much to the uh, annoyance of the uh, London artisans, particularly the bricklayers who uh, uh, picketed the site. But the exchange provided a model for others. Gresham was instrumental in procuring Van Passion's services for Cecil, who was building his prodigy, prodigy house at Theobald's. The Flemish mason was responsible for the first of the lodgers uh, there, which and carved in Antwerp in 1567-8 and shipped through Gresham's good offices. And the Flemish Renaissance made its way, um, uh, well, in Gresham's own houses, because we don't, know, unfortunately, we don't really know what, Ost well, I don't know what Ostley looked like, because that was his most lavish residence, which was extraordinary. Uh, I think the, the furnishings are worth £8,500 at his death, uh, we do, but we don't know much about it. I'd dearly love to know what the inside of that was like. But interestingly, I, my favourite example of this is, is um, Gresham's factor and man of business, Richard Clough, who built this rather extraordinary house uh, near Denby uh, in the late 1560s. Now, the sources tend to skew us to a view of 16th century merchants as one-dimensional figures narrowly focused on money-making. But they were among the better educated members of the community. Gresham uh, had attended grammar school and had enjoyed brief exposure to Cambridge and the Inns of Court. The grammar school's probably not uncommon. The, the university was not so common for a merchant. But he's comfortable in Latin and French. It's true his letters do not give the impression of a man deeply immersed in the classical world, nor do they give much away on his religious views. But the difference that a single source can make is shown by the inventory of a leading merchant adventurer and pioneer of the trade to Muscovy, Sir William Garrard, who owned books in English, Latin and French. He had an old Bible in English, as well as a Latin Bible and a Latin Testament. His reading crossed the theological spectrum with works as varied as a book of St. Thomas More's work, um, the Latin Catechism of Dean Alexander Noel, and Fox's Book of Martyrs. There was also a sprinkling of works of history and geography with a French chronicle and a cosmography in Latin, as well as legal works, including Bracton and an abridgment of the statutes. And that seems to me to be more than a mere token engagement with the world of learning. We've perhaps given too much attention to the royal court as a centre of cultural, cultural patronage and neglected the role of merchants. Merchants were prominent, for example, among the patrons of the printer William Caxton, a copy of whose Canterbury Tales was, uh, was owned by a member of the Haberdashers' Company, the co company's coat of arms appearing uh, in this beautifully illustrated copy owned by Merton College. Caxton, remember, was a member of the Mercer's Company and governor of the English merchants at Bruges. There are lots of other examples. It was the merchant adventurer George Tadlow, a man of sage and discreet wit, who persuaded, George, who persuaded Ralph Robinson, clerk of the London Goldsmiths Company, to translate Moore's Utopia into English. The university-educated merchant and future Lord Mayor, Henry Billingsley, translated Peter Martyr's commentaries on St Paul's letters to the Romans uh, and, Euclid, uh, and Euclid, also Euclid's elements of works in Latin and Greek. Gresham's agent, Richard Clough, put, put the Welsh antiquarian um, uh, Humphrey Lloyd in touch with a Flemish uh, cartographer, um, 
Abraham Ortelius. And I think it's this milia buzzing with discussions about cosmography, mathematics, cartography, litigation, social reform, economic management, and religious controversies, which goes some way to explain one of the mysteries of, of Gresham's life, which is the decision to found the college which bears his name, to provide the public lectures of which Richard spoke in his uh, introductory remarks, and which brings us uh, together this evening, because it was a unique thing in 16th century English terms. Cambridge didn't get his money as they wanted. Now, some would go further in their claims about the contribution of merchants to 16th century intellectual life. Alison Games suggests that cosmopolitanism was most evident in the world of commerce. The circulation of goods required the circulation of people who travelled abroad, inserted themselves in foreign communities and brought back their treasures. Some merchants might demonstrate an interest in and sympathy for foreign mores, worked with and for foreigners, sometimes immersed themselves in foreign worlds and gradually dislodged themselves from unthinking attachments to a single nation. That's her claim. Now, I think that's to put the case a bit too strongly because one of the problems with this argument as it might apply to the English merchant communities we've been exploring is that the resident core was pretty small as compared with the transients who just came over for the march. They were pretty short-term visitors. Those who were resident tended to a form of associative, associative life which cut them off from the host community. The merchant adventurers resided in designated English houses and dined together. Ownership of real estate abroad was forbidden. Intermarriage with locals, though not unheard of, was rare, and uh, sexual relations are obviously forbidden to apprentices. More common were illicit relationships with local women. Interesting that both Gresham and his factor, Clough, had illegitimate children. It's true that someone like Richard Clough, undoubtedly an intelligent man, could see that there were lessons to be learned from the way things were organised in the Low Countries to England's advantage, and he could be critical of his fellow countrymen, but he was also subject to some unthinking reflexes about foreigners, arguing in favour, this is in 1566, in favour of a staple at York or Hull, a bit impractical, against the proposed alternatives of Hamburg or Emden. The people of Emden, he claimed, were both were rude, both in word and deed, and not meet to entertain merchants. Those of Hamburg, apart from being too subservient to the emperor, were a kind of people rude and nothing inclined to our nature, envious and beggarly of goods and wits, incivil and manners, and without all mercy where they are masters. As a Venetian commentator had shrewdly remarked at the beginning of the century, the English were great lovers of themselves and of everything belonging to them. They think that there are no other men than themselves and no other world but England. And whenever they see a handsome foreigner, they say he looks like an Englishman and that it's a great pity that he should not be an Englishman. Now, perhaps the uh, Elizabethan merchants were a little more open-minded than this, but not that much more. Of course, foreigners were increasingly encountered on the streets of London. There has always been a sizable community of migrants back and forth across the North Sea uh, and Channel, but it was swollen by waves of religious refugees in the 1560s when the stranger population of London perhaps doubled. By 1570, there were about 7,000 strangers in the capital, often clustered in particular neighbourhoods. And there were very significant communities in places like Norwich, where, in fact, the alien population was as high as one-third in 1570. 
Gresham's own household included two strangers in 1568, a Dutchman and a Frenchman. Now, the presence of these strangers aroused mixed feelings. There was much resentment from craftsmen in some trades, and there were potent memories of the anti-alien riots of evil May Day in 1517. But others welcomed the skills of the immigrants or sympathised with their plight as victims of continental persecutions. The 16th century debate on immigration resonates familiarly. Were they asylum seekers uh, needing our sympathy or economic migrants determined to take the bread out of our mouths? In 1593, the city corporation sponsored a bill in Parliament to stop strangers engaging in retail trade, the latest in a series of restrictive measures designed to meet the popular resentments. Nicholas Fuller, a leading member of the city's legal council and member of parliament, claimed that the exclamation of this city is pitiful and exceeding against these strangers. Their wealth is grown such by beggaring of us that it is no charity to have this pity on them to our undoing. But Henry Finch, another godly MP who sat for Canterbury, pushed the arguments of Christian obligation, reminding members of the support strangers had given religious exiles in the reign of Mary Tudor, when the boot was on the other foot, as it were. In Queen Mary's time, when our case was as theirs, those countries did allow us all those liberties which we now seek to deny them. They are strangers now. We may be strangers hereafter. Therefore, let us do as we would be done to. Sir John Woolley the Queen's Latin secretary pushed the argument for strangers in a different direction, recognising their economic utility. Quote, the riches and renown of the, of the city come by entertaining strangers and giving liberty unto them. Antwerp, Venice and Padua would never have been so rich or famous, but by well entertaining strangers and giving liberty unto them, and so gained all the intercourse in the world. Woolley had a point. Uh, Oh, I've missed that. Yes, I should have shown those. Um, Woolley had a point. The forced migrations of the 16th century resulted in significant transfers of skills and technology that fed, in, in, fed into the government's policies of import substitution and accelerated the processes of adaptation and catch-up by English manufacturing. Many of the migrants of the 1560s including, included makers of cheaper silks and mixed light textile goods who adapted their skills to produce cheaper fabrics for the domestic market and revitalised the textile, in, textile industries of London and Norwich. In 1567, Jean Carré, a religious refugee from Antwerp, began a glass manufactory in the Crutched Friars, and he subsequently recruits nine Venetian glass workers who, under Giacomo Vezzolini, take over the business and secure a monopoly from 1574. And in the long run, this transforms the English glass industry so that the Venetian ambassador complains somewhat implausibly, I think, that English crystal glass rivaled the Venetian product. It was more the case that the English were producing cheaper goods, uh, you know, undercutting the, 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 the foreign imports. Contrary to a lot of the rhetoric of complaints about the aliens forming a commonwealth within themselves, cut off from the host society, there were plenty of opportunities for skills transmission. So a survey of 1593 revealed that 1,665 stranger households employed 1,671 Englishmen, and alternatively, aliens might be employed by Englishmen. Uh, so 97 alien goldsmiths journeymen were serving English masters in Elizabethan London, compared to 122 serving aliens. Sometimes apprentices were turned over to aliens for part of their terms, so that they could enrich their skills. 
There was more intermarriage and inter integration with the host population at the level of the second generation. So over time, there was cross considerable cross-fertilisation of skills. In 1608, native silk workers claimed that, in, claimed that in Elizabeth's day, native Englishmen were not so skillful in trades. But now are the people skillful in all manners of trades, as silk weaving, weaving of silk lace of silver and gold, and broad tufted taffetas, all kinds of broadstuffs, but especially the throwing of raw silks by silk throasters. Now, we've come thus far, and I'm wrapping up now, We've come thus far without actually mentioning the dreadful B word, um, though it has certainly cast its shadow over my remarks. And some of that 16th century discourse still resonates, sometimes worryingly so. England's relationship with Europe was renegotiated, successfully renegotiated, I think one can say, but it was not a straightforward process. There were many false starts. Change was slow and uneven. And it depended on the constant exchange of people and ideas, of people and ideas, as well as goods. The flow of people was always contested and there were always blockages. Uh, so, for instance, the limited travel to Italy in the later 16th century. But it's difficult to look at this period without denying the economic and cultural benefits of those immigrant communities. London's merchants ultimately proved flexible and pragmatic. Some of them took real risks in the pursuit of new trading opportunities. The commercial economy successfully diversified. New trade deals were made, sometimes on rather impressive terms. The deal with Turkey in 1581 gave the English better terms than the French. They paid lower customs. But trade deals were determined as much by political as by commercial considerations, and they had sometimes unintended consequences. The English had leverage with the Ottomans, not only because of their bribery, that helped, of Ottoman officials, and their contacts through the Portuguese Jewish diaspora, but also because they could supply the tin needed for um, Ottoman ordnance. That was the key thing that England had that others didn't, tin, Cornish tin. Of course, the irony was that some of that ordnance that the Turks developed then found its way onto the ships which took English merchants and mariners captive, and the captivity of English mariners was a major preoccupation of early 17th century governments. Likewise, the gains for ordinary folk, as I should have shown this, the gains for ordinary folk in a period of plunging living standards would have been less obvious. While London plutocrats, especially those in the Levant trades, enjoyed fabulous levels of wealth, most of the city's craftsmen and artisans were only just about managing, while crisis years like the 1590s drew in swarms of subsistence migrants from the provinces, straining the capital's fragile welfare infrastructure. And as I've emphasised, GDP per head was static through the 16th century. It was only in the later 17th century in a situation of higher real wages and in an economy buoyed up by the profits of colonial re-exports, um, that's tobacco and sugar predominantly, only then that England was really able to take the, overtake the low countries in the, in the growth stakes. It was only over the course of the 17th century that GDP per head in England uh, it, uh, doubled. So it was a long haul. And I conclude there. Thank you.